0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Planning Commission Podcast. Today's episode, The Sooner, The Better, with Mick Cornett, business consultant and public speaker with Magellan Executive Partners. The Planning Commission Podcast is a discussion you never even knew you needed. Sit back, join us for a conversation between a couple of old friends and their guests, to talk about all the things that are happening in this wide ranging profession called planning. Our views are our own and don't reflect those of any national planning organizations or any particular public agencies and only belong to us. So read your commission packet, know your Robert's rules, and enjoy this, the Planning Commission Podcast. (laughs) Hello, Commissioners. Let's take roll. Commissioner Minshaw, you here? Present. And Commissioner Koselik? Here. As well as myself, we are all present. Our agenda today, our discussion item, our whiskey pairing, our interview, and our lightning round. Commissioners, can I get a motion to approve? No moved. Second. Wonderful. And to our audience, just as a reminder, you can find all our past meetings on our website, www.ThePlanningCommissionPodcast.com. Head over to YouTube, Amazon, Apple. Please, please, please subscribe, like, and give us feedback. By the way, email email us and give us your feedback, comments, all those kind of episode ideas at PlanningCommissionPodcast at gmail.com. Commissioners, holy cow, do we have a guest today. I'm excited. Are you excited? Yes. yes. I'm
1: excited. In in one of our previous, in one of our previous episodes, we had asked about who did, who was a like role model in the public sector, and Mm. Mike, I picked you. So (laughs) I'm really excited to get have you on here.
0: Yeah, we have a guest that is uh, you're going to get to know him in a in a moment if you don't already. As a planner, he is a former mayor who uh, again led his his city. What a story. And we'll get into all the details in just a minute. Uh, But let's set the stage here and talk about the things that really move the needle. What are the things that we can invest in, plan for, that really, really, really can change, in this instance, the, the general health of our population, right? And we know that, my goodness, we're we're dealing with so many things as Americans. We've been talking about chronic diseases for quite some time. And as you both know, we've been really exploring lately this concept of the social side and isolation and loneliness and other mental health type of a, of a concern. And here we are, tip of the spear to an extent on what can we do policy-wise to address these things. So my question to you, what is the one thing that you You have all the planning, all the ability in the world. No one can say no to you. I know that never happens as a planner, but what would you plan for or invest to improve the health of your city's residents? Hmm, hmm, hmm. So many things to choose from. Do either of you have something you want to just jump in and go for? Yes. Okay, go for it. I'll take
2: that. Given all of our talk about safety and health and things like the new infrastructure bill and federal transportation, New rule. No metropolitan area can widen another road until they first fill the sidewalk gaps (laughs) on existing arterials and surface straight state highways. If we can't do that basic thing, then we've failed because we'll widen a road for motorists who won't exist for another 20 years based on what the model says. But we can't fill a sidewalk gap. In a low income area, we can't put in a safe pedestrian crossing across a major street to get to a park, a greenway, all those things. So we kind of automatically deny access in the most basic ways when we don't do things like
0: that. So the motorist is getting dessert, 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 and the walker can't even get the bread tray that comes out at the beginning, right? They can't even kinda, get the <laughs> server to come to the table. <laughs> right? Here's the salsa, but you ain't got no chips. Yeah, there you go.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> I, I like it. It's good. I mean, yeah, it, you're not wrong. I mean, how is it that we live in uh, an environment where we can do all the things that we can do, and I love it. I love that we are a country that has sent up into space the this telescope that literally looks back billions and billions and billions of light years. Sidewalk gap, can't do it. Can't fill it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, we can. We just have to have the will, you know, to make it happen. So, Sabrina, do you have one?
1: I do. Um, it's actually one that I know that our guest is going to talk a lot more about here, training in our background. Talk a lot more about, but. Similar to sidewalks, I would say have both money and have a priority to really define and connect our spaces and our places, um, mm-hmm. understanding how much it builds community so that you don't have so much disparate, you know, good things happening, but there's nothing connected, and especially in a pedestrian or bicycle world where you actually can move between those places and it means something for what the community is.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. We're often broken in half by a wall. And I think I've mentioned this before, but to your point, I can't think of a a much better spot than the the Liberty Park example in Salt Lake Mm -hmm. where, man, here you have this historic, wonderful two miles, two square mile park that has absolutely everything in it and an entire row of houses on the other side of this row with all of their front on porches looking right at it. But six lane divided highway separating it a hundred feet and they can't get there. And it, oh. like we don't have, you, know what? here's your hover pack or whatever, right? It's like, no, they can't. And we literally are to- basically told you have to drive to get to that park that's right there that you can he- literally hear people having a great time, but you can't get to unless you have to fire up the car to get there.
1: And, and almost every community that we all live or work in uh, has that struggle. Every, every community has their version of this, this amazing thing they've done or these yeah. amazing three, four, yeah. five things that groups have done. But they're they're not connected to any sort of system that builds the community.
0: Mm, yeah, and our guess is, uh, man, made made one mm-hmm. of these types of places on the in a good way happen uh, with a major investment and in a park that will we'll, I'm sure we'll get to in just a second. I'm going to go the other way. As a former personal trainer, I'm attacking your calories. I'm making sure we can do a little something on the input side versus the output side. King of the world. You've heard me say it. Let's do it. Drive-throughs. You're out. (laughs) Get rid of it. If you can't get out of your car to go get the 500 calorie (laughs) bacon covered maple bar, (laughs) (laughs)
2: you're being generous on the calories you think it's maybe a
0: thousand yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. i I was trying to be nice like if we can't even muster enough energy to go get the 2000 calorie quad shot double mocha venti whatever it is i know man you're gonna earn it i'm making you earn it i'm king of the world. It's my city i get to do what i want there you go so that's what i'm gonna do get rid of the drive-thrus man See, I thought,
2: right. a, oh, I thought you would go with this because it would have been the second one of mine. No more subdivisions where the playground, tot, lot, whatever, Within open the space drainage, doubles as a stormwater pond.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a fishing hole too. You know, it's it's it, it can be both. Uh, mixed use, right? It's a different type yeah. of mixed use. And yeah. Anyway. Okay. So let's get to our whiskey pairing. Don, what do you have?
2: Boy, another deviation from this, but we appreciate (laughs) when the guests provide it. Uh, We're going to go a little uh, straight edge today with uh, Diet Coke being the uh, beverage pairing. And looking it up, my goodness, it's been uh, 1982, so almost 42 years since it debuted. And a factoid Mm -hmm. about it, Diet Coke was not an extension of the original Coca-Cola flavor. It was based on Tab.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah. Wow, that is it's a good factoid, Costellate.
2: Yeah, yeah. It took me All back right. to my mm-hmm. uh days at my grandmother's watching the prices right and guessing the prices <laughs> on those things. So look yeah. at you and you
1: you look at you and your Google degree. That's that's
2: good. Yeah. Well done. Well done. And Probably not I, right because it's on Wikipedia, but you know, we'll see.
0: And truth be told, if I'm not drinking my carbonated waters, which I drink a lot of my go-to caffeine-free diet coke there you go mm. you're welcome mm. so all right i gotta say Wait. the
2: cherry versions of either that or coke zero <laughs> those those are really good i've enjoyed those over the course of a couple of decades
0: sabrina's shaking her head she's a pepsi girl i think i'm a fan. i am a
1: diet pepsi girl but not, i don't drink I other sodas besides i, I diet pepsi and i don't even yeah. drink
2: that much Diet Pepsi. So. And I, in, in doing that research diet right the rc brand been around since 1958
0: ah, we were, yeah yeah Health conscious back in the 50s. I like it. All right, cool. All right, let's turn our attention real quick to our our friends at Plan Edison. So uh, we want to thank them for supporting today's podcast. And if you're looking to sharpen your urban planning skills and advance your planning career, head on over to Plan Edison Courses, which offers over 300 courses on cutting-edge planning topics and skills such as parking reform, missing middle housing, equity analysis, and climate resilience. Visit courses.planedison.com forward slash PC10 to take advantage of an exclusive offer for Planning Commission podcast listeners. Enough about us and our antics. It's time to bring in uh, an incredible guest, Mick Cornett who is the former mayor of Oklahoma City and is now, as I mentioned earlier, business consultant and public speaker Dejour, I should add De jour to it because you're really, really good <laughs> at it um, with Magellan Executive Partners. Mick, thank you so much for joining our show.
3: Great to be on your show. Thanks. Man, I appreciate man. it. We, we we're we're grateful for your
0: time. So, without uh, further ado, let's just start with you. Uh, your background, I mean, gosh, YouTube this man, and you're going to see some wonderful <laughs> things, leader. Extraordinaire, uh, a voice that we need more of. Frankly, I think at the municipal level, national level, state level, all the levels. Can you be at all places at one time, Mick?
3: Um, I probably have been. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> so, give us a sense of you. You know, how did you get into even becoming mayor, and that evolution, and, and, and where you are today? Before we get into the story of Oklahoma City, and then where you are today.
3: Okay, well, I'll I'll try to do it succinctly. I I grew up in the suburbs of Oklahoma City. I always wanted to be a TV sportscaster, and so I went to college, uh, majored in uh, broadcast journalism, and uh, quickly uh, ascended in a 20-year career. Most of that was as a television sportscaster and anchor and reporter and photographer, and sports guys kind of have to do it all. And then uh, following the Oklahoma City bombing, I kind of went through a um, you know a restructure of my life and kind of did a personal accounting and decided I wanted to make a difference in some other way. And I didn't know exactly what that meant immediately, but my, my bosses switched me over to news, and so I became a news anchor and reporter. And on a, a now infamous day in my life, um, my, uh, my boss almost ordered or forced me to go cover City Hall. And uh, I I thought I was being punished. I thought, you know, this is like the worst assignment that any news reporter could have. And uh, in about an hour or two of that city council meeting, it changed my life because I realized one thing that I didn't know I was looking for. But I realized at the city level, at a city council, as an elected position, you can make a difference. And that's what I I wanted to make a difference. I didn't know how or why or what I was going to do to do that. But I realized that that's what I wanted to do. So I, I left television, started my own video production business um and ran for city council, was elected and uh, then three years later our mayor spot opened up, ran for that and was elected and then ultimately served 14 years as the mayor of Oklahoma City
1: that was pretty succinct. You can tell you've been yeah. in general. Good
3: job. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've, little...
1: I've had the pleasure of listening to you speak when you both came to our area here and then um, up when I was in Spokane. And you've got such a long story that, yeah. and a long career of just great accomplishments that really made a difference. So start, well, t- tell us about that story. Tell us about so the story about I, Oklahoma I City.
3: One of the things that makes my approach as a public speaker or as a mayor different is that I didn't really have any planning and anything important. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I didn't know real estate. I really didn't know, you know, business at the CEO level. Uh, I didn't certainly didn't know anything about urban planning. I mean, absolutely nothing. And I probably knew even less about public health or health. I mean, I was overweight. I wasn't even in good health. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that now I speak on urban planning and public health is almost laughable to me. because. <laughs> I have absolutely no professional training in these areas. I just kind of keep my eyes open and have learned and have have asked the right people and have, you know, I, I, I try to listen. But if I have one skill, it's that I know how to talk to people. And my television background, what that provided me is I can take something that might be fairly complicated or fairly lengthy, and I can condense it very quickly and succinctly tell it in a way that people find entertaining, enjoyable, or interesting. And I didn't even know that was a skill. I didn't, you know, I didn't didn't uh, think it had any value and uh, kind of learned along the way that that's what I could do. I mean, and, and it was a real asset as a public figure to be able to talk to people. Um, I bet
2: the staff loved that when you got up there as mayor, because you probably kept those meetings pretty short and
3: sweet, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, we moved along in those meetings. I mean, (laughs) if if you had something to say, you better quit. You better be quick because uh, I got through our city council meetings, you know, in a couple of hours, uh, generally speaking. Um, And, you know, I tried to, you know, people would say something and it would be a little bit disjointed. You know, it could be a, a person the public could be an attorney could be another council person when i just felt like no one really understood what they said i would succinctly you know chop it up and say what i'm hearing you say is and then i would say it in a in a manner that i hoped was better than what they had said kind of giving their argument for them and and uh, it i think it allowed people to understand what we were talking about because it it's it can be really hard in a in a city council format to kind of follow along And make it where the average person can kind of keep up and know that we're talking about very real things that affect real people. Mm -hmm. And we're not just a bunch of bureaucrats, you know, who are up here talking about how many whereases we can put into (laughs) work.
1: Yeah, well, that, that active listening skill sounds like that was really part of your collaboration abilities. Right. To really keep people we'll yeah. together, and get things done because people felt
3: heard and listened. to. Well, th- and that's right. The I guess the other attribute that I brought is that I didn't have a really strong agenda of wanting to do a bunch of different things. And I'm and I'm not really partisan. I just want to get things done. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking for five votes on the council because that was the majority. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I just never felt like, you know, talking never accomplished a whole lot. So we can talk have an open forum but at some point we're going to make a decision and we're going to move on and then we're going to go to the next issue. And so I, how see did it, you make I see I see Okay. I see a lot of public forums and elected, you know, you know, Congress or state legislators and a lot of city councils, hopefully not ours, but a lot of them they just do a lot of talking and they don't ever get around to getting things done. And I I if I was about anything it was getting things done and moving on. So one well, of your I, things yeah. with
2: well, Oklahoma City was, you know, the obese city that lost uh, a million pounds. Uh-huh. When did you start to make that pivot uh, to understand these things? And what were the kind of policies and conditions in place at the city level that you realized were impacting residents in the negative way?
3: Yeah, well, it, it evolved. I mean, I didn't have any idea that I was going to take a significant part of my life down that road. But what happened was I was elected mayor. I was out talking to our own citizens about all the great things that were happening in our city. And I was pulling out these lists from websites and magazines about, you know, best city to do that and best city to do this. And we were starting to show up on the list. And that was cool because we'd never really been on a list before. And, uh, and, and it would be like number two. Ten best place to start a business, or number eight place to get a job. You know, I'd be out telling our citizens, you know, that hey, we're we're somebody, we're on these lists with all these other cities, and then came out the list of the most obese cities in the country, and here I was, the mayor who was talking about how important these lists were, and you Mm. know, I was embarrassed, and the media was sticking microphones in my face, asking me what I was going to do about it, and I didn't have any idea, and then I got on the scales, and I realized that you know, I was. 40 pounds overweight. And I remember this one website I went to, I I typed in my height and weight, hit enter, and it said obese. And I remember saying, what a stupid website. (laughs) I'm not obese. I'd know if I was obese. I'm not obese. But obviously I was, I was just in denial, you know, and a lot of people don't look at themselves as an example of the problem. And it took me a while and so I started losing weight. I just ate less. I didn't, I, I'd, I'd always exercise, but I, I just ate way too much. And, uh, and so I started looking at our city, trying to figure out why do we have an obesity problem? And that's when I realized that we had built an incredible quality of life if you happen to be a car. If, if you were a car, there was no better place in the world for you to live than Oklahoma City because our we had these huge capacity of roads. It's as if we had challenged our civil engineers to see how quickly they could get a car from here to here. And that was their <laughs> really only objective as a civil engineer in our city. And they were really good at it. I mean, traffic to this day just flies through Oklahoma City. It, you get a, a speeding ticket during rush hour because of the way that the traffic just flows and and then i looked and and i i realized that we had this this kind of fast food mentality um because we spent so much time in our car and because land is really cheap in oklahoma city the model for a fast food restaurant really works in oklahoma city probably better than it does anywhere else someone told me we had more fast food restaurants per capita than any place on the earth and I don't know where they came up with that, but I went with it and and passed <laughs> that along. And 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 what I realized after a, a time being was that the real problem that that we were that we were facing was it was a it was an issue we weren't talking about. We're nice people. We don't want to talk about how fat we're getting. We don't want to look at each other and call each other obese. And I thought, well, you know, that's the strategy that's got us into this place. I mean, I remember talking to some people at the Chamber of Commerce about my concerns about obesity. And I said, you know, when when usually when you're placed on a list, one of those lists that you don't want to be on, in this case, the most obese cities in the country, usually when you're placed on one of those lists, there's all this pushback. And there's all this self-defense <laughs> and you talk about the way the data was collected and you, you talk about the way that, that 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 it's really misleading. And this is these are the real facts. And when we were placed on the list of the most obese cities in the country, we all just kind of looked at each other and went, yeah, I bet that's right. Uh, <laughs> when we weren't in denial. We just weren't doing anything about it. And so. I I figured out, and this took months of kind of studying it and looking at it and thinking about it, staying up at night thinking about this issue. I realized I I really don't know what the solution is, but I know the first step is we've got to talk about it. We've got to have an open conversation as a community about this very serious health problem. And so I came up with kind of a stunt. Uh, to get a, a, a public awareness, um, uh, project going. And, uh, so on New Year's day of 2007 or New Year's Eve, I'm sorry, when people are making resolutions, I went to the zoo and I stood in front of the elephants and I said, this city is going mm. on a diet and we're going to lose a million pounds. And that's kind of when all hell broke loose. Uh <laughs> There was there was there was this, these outlandish comments about the fact that the mayor had put the city on a diet and did he really have the authority to do that? I mean, <laughs> some people got it, some people didn't. But you didn't
2: have enough whereas th- statements in
3: that proclamation. Yeah, that's right. Here, the bottom line was we were talking about it. I mean, when the mayor puts everybody in the city on a diet, there is talk going on over the backyard fence, over the dinner table you know pastors talking about it with their congregations suddenly business leaders are talking about it with their hr departments and their employee mm-hmm. base cuz when the mayor talks about how fat he is and in fact that he needs to lose some more weight then suddenly the veil has been lifted off this really difficult subject and people are more willing to talk about it and that was really what kickstarted Oklahoma City's effort and then i think the element of what you all want to talk about is that led to the changes in the built environment? And I didn't know that's where it was going to go, but I could I could quickly see that that's where I could make a difference. So what happened to the elephant?
1: No <laughs> elephants.
3: <laughs> yeah, so the people at this zoo, so by the way, were insulted that, that I insinuated <laughs> the elephants were fat. <laughs>
1: The, the elephants were. Who knew so that well.
3: elephants weren't fat? The, 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 <laughs> if, the zoo if, people were telling me our elephants are fit. Wait, wait, wait. Mm. Okay, if ever, okay. you're, if ever there's
0: going to be the excuse of something being big boned, quote unquote, <laughs> it's the elephant, right? So, Sabrina, yeah. go ahead. Okay. I'm
1: just so ready to talk about the built environment. Okay. okay. So, what happened in the built environment? I mean, I don't know that everybody's heard about tell us about just the overview of the maps one, two, and three. Okay. And and then what, what did that built environment change both help with health, but also how did it change the community?
3: Well, first of all, I had to, I had to kind of start telling people in Oklahoma city, just how bad our, our built environment was. Our downtown grid had been laid out a hundred years earlier When covered wagons needed a lot of room to make a U turn in the middle of the street. Mm -hmm. So our downtown streets were six lanes wide. They were all, all one way. And it was almost impossible to cross the street. And you mentioned the MAPS program. We have this interesting infrastructure program. And I, I say infrastructure, that includes public, uh, public, uh, uh, Buildings like, you know, sports arenas and libraries and things like that. We've been able to build a lot of public amenities in the city with this penny on the dollar sales tax. But so we had so we'd started to build these elements downtown, but we hadn't changed the built environment. And so once you arrived downtown to see some of these really cool things, you almost were combating the automobile at every turn. It was like a war between the pedestrian and the car. And we didn't really have many sidewalks around the city. I mean, we had this huge geographic footprint of a city limits and an embarrassingly small amount of sidewalks built and and then take the wide streets. and, And so I just looked for funding opportunities. And so we had some additional capacity coming into a sales tax election. We had a bond issue coming up. We had this huge tiff because there was a skyscraper being built in our city and we talked about doing some public improvements around it, but the the CEO of the, the, the company that was building the skyscraper was so generous. He said, well, why don't we use that TIF to redo the, the built environment, the streetscape basically for 180 acres around mm-hmm. downtown. So not just our mm-hmm. building, but everywhere. And so we were able to fund an entirely new grid in our downtown business district um, all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to w- with those under other funding sources, hundreds of miles of sidewalks, hundreds of miles of jogging and biking paths, and we built senior health and wellness centers. Um, and we invested on our river for the sports of canoe, kayak, and rowing, where now we host the Olympic trials uh, every every four years and have regattas. And all of that's downtown. We built a whitewater facility downtown for those sports. Um, and so there's just all of this activity taking place downtown, and the pedestrian feels right at home. Uh, downtown and has a much better chance in the suburban areas where there actually are sidewalks and jogging and biking paths. And we took a city that was the worst example of urban sprawl and suburbia and have have improved neighborhoods across hundreds of square miles. Mm -hmm. So part of it was that we figured out how to pay for it. You know, it's not not like I'm the only mayor that wanted to build these things, but I may have been one of the few that wanted to do it and could figure out how to pay for it and then had civil engineers that really embraced the idea and a planning department that was, you know, just felt like, you know, this was just an avalanche of an opportunity in their careers because they knew how poorly planned our city was. And all of a sudden we were doing something about it and everybody just wanted to jump on board.
1: So I have heard you tell part of that story in the past um, Mm -hmm. that has always stuck with me and I've repeated. and And it's, more in my neck of just more than just bro environment, but tell us a little bit more about when Oklahoma city would have site selectors that would come and want to, you know, you're, you're competing for for these bigger companies to come to the area and, and how did that go before? And then as you started to actually define and have a different kind of community, how did that impact the work that a lot of our colleagues do in economic development and, and bringing more revenue, bringing more businesses?
3: Yeah, well, one of my predecessors um, had spent all of his political capital and a couple of years of his time as mayor in pursuing a huge economic development opportunity, and the incentive package he was able to put together was amazing. I mean, the the best in the country of all the cities that were pursuing this this one job creator. And in the end, we finished second, and he was disappointed and didn't really understand and uh, he he finally found out why we didn't get it. This company had sent in some mid-level executives and their spouses and had them spend a weekend in downtown Oklahoma City. And remember, this is 1990, at the, you know, at the mm. bottom of our kind of uh, urban economy. And they reported back to headquarters what they saw. And at the end of the day, the CEO of this company said, we can't put these jobs in Oklahoma City because we can't force our employees to have to live there. I mean th- that's how bad the quality of life had gotten in this in the urban city. Now in the suburbs, it was okay, but the the quality of life in your downtown, the vitality of your core is so important and it 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 ultimately it 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 allowed me to prove to people that the vitality that well, that the quality of life in the suburbs was directly related to the intensity of the core hmm. and and that's not necessarily you know instinctive you know in oklahoma city life is okay in the suburbs that's where everybody lived it's where we went to church it's where we worked you know we didn't go downtown cuz there was nothing to do there but our city was suffering and you can't be a suburb of nothing and that's what we were trying to do so What we ultimately did, and my predecessors had kind of set up my era for success, we were able to kind of build from the inner city out and become a downtown area and an urban core that the entire metro area could be proud of. Um, And that ultimately made all the difference in civic pride, our own citizens' willingness to invite family and friends to come see us, our CVB to be, um, you know, in, in. uh, impressive, and and it became a, a distinct part of our our, our economy. Um, you know, we, we were an oil and gas-based economy 30 years ago. We've since, d- you know, diversified into aviation and biomedical and tourism. And, mm-hmm. you know, those were things that we just kind of dreamed about, you know, um, 30 years ago.
1: Well, part of why I kind of piggybacked on that question is, Mm-hmm. I've heard so much from a lot of my colleagues and all of us have to remember of that investment because now, especially with younger groups, people can really work from almost anywhere. And so when they have more choices of where to live and what brings those kind of, I think in one of your books, you talk about the creative class that it brings to it, um, they have a lot of choices. And so yeah. what our community looks and feels like in that identity and those amenities and how we treat our downtowns, especially, it's a game changer. So I appreciate that,
3: yeah. what one of the disconnects is that we all want to build cities for highly educated 20-somethings. That's what we're all trying to attract. Highly educated young people, entrepreneurs. And that's a very entrepreneurial generation. Um, But when you go to vote, who votes? Old people. People like me. We go to the polls and we vote. So we, we create policies that aren't necessarily aligned with the people we're trying to attract to our cities. And so one of the things I tried to impress on our voting public is we have to create a city for your grandchildren. Your grandchildren are going to leave if we don't start doing things differently. And it was a message that resonated because they had seen it. My generation left. You know, mm-hmm. if you came of age in the 1980s in Oklahoma City, there weren't jobs if you had an advanced degree or if, you know, if you had ambitions. Um, you know, when I when I see my high school graduating class, and it was a pretty, you know, high performing class, um, you know, we have a we have a reunion. There's more people from Dallas, you know, than there are from Oklahoma City. Hmm. You know, uh there's, there's they're in New York and Chicago and Japan, but there aren't that many that are still in Oklahoma City. We lost a generation of talent because we let the urban core subside. And we hadn't diversified our economy and we hadn't invested in education and health and wellness and created a quality of life where those young people could see a future for themselves. Um, So convincing older people to build a city for younger people is not an easy task, but we were able to do it. And the city has not lost an election since 1986. Mm. Everything we put in front of the voters has passed.
0: I You know, it's almost biblical when you talk about the return of the the water to the river. (laughs) You know, I mean, literally, right? I mean, what a concept of here was this incredible attribute that really wasn't. And I love in your discussions about there being the line item of mowing the river every year, (laughs) you know, and um, I know my, I I think I've shared this, but my first day of of planning grad school, our professor said think about your most ideal place. And every one of us had water in our ideal place somehow or another, you know, and and the power of creating a waterfront and people just gravitating. Our bodies are what, 70% water. And I think there's just this magnetism, you know, kind of a thing to it. I'm just curious, you know, you talked about the sidewalks and the street redesigns and the creation of a, a wonderful new park that came from the highway that was that was real or altered the direction of it and all these things who has come who was against you at the beginning and what did they have specifics about why were you the nanny state Were you you know kind of wagging your finger. And and how did you get those people over the the course of all those years, four terms you were in, right? Mm-hmm. And how, how did you get them to come along? And, and ultimately, maybe not every one of them, of course, but most of them come along and and see the light, so to speak.
3: Well, yeah. yeah. So I, I think it's, the number is not fresh in my mind, but I think it's 12. There were 12 times when I went to the public and asked them to vote for something. It may have been me as a candidate. It may have been a bond issue or a school bond issue or a map sales tax proposal. But there were 12 times when I was trying to convince people to vote for something. And I noticed this pattern that would that would emerge. I'd be in some far off suburban public meeting, you know, where neighborhood leaders come and and, you know, you know, their their neighborhoods wouldn't have met the the scrutiny of, of anybody on the panel here today. But nonetheless, that's who's going to determine the outcome of this election. And I remember, you know, in every one of these meetings, it seems like I'd see somebody at the back of the room just scowling the whole time I'm talking. I'm talking about this, you know, this world I'm trying to create for them. And I I realized I could start making assumptions that that person that was scowling at me, they, they didn't like downtown. They didn't like taxes. And they didn't like me. (laughs) <laughs> and and I realized when I when I'd lost the intellectual argument, you know, of what I was trying to accomplish, I would close with this. I would say, "Well, all all I can tell you is we're going to build a city where your kid and your grandkid are going to choose to live." Mm-hmm. And oh, they hated that argument <laughs> because they knew it was true. They had enough ancillary comments from younger people about how great this city was becoming. And they also knew that my generation had left. It may not have been in their house, but they had a nephew or a niece or a grandkid or a brother or sister. Everybody knew talented, young, educated people who had grown up in Oklahoma city and left for what they considered a better opportunity. And suddenly as we, you know, kind of got some momentum, you could see that wasn't true anymore. Uh, you know, I mean, now people were starting to move to Oklahoma City from Texas and California, and, and this was like bizarre behavior. It was like, it was like geographic shifts and demographic shifts that no one could truly understand or appreciate, uh, but it was happening. And, you know, we have a low quality, we have a, a low cost of living. We have no traffic congestion to speak of, and we have an abundance of fresh water and clean air. And fortunately, those are things that a lot of people in other places are looking for. We kind of take those things for granted because it's what we've always had. But now people kind of see the wisdom of, of these you know, mid-sized cities in the center part of the United States offering a quality of life that some people would choose over a big city on the coast.
0: Hey, and- Mick. Maybe, maybe one of the reasons they hated you was because you're a pa- apparently a Packer fan in Dallas Cowboy <laughs> land. I mean, I'm just guessing. Hey, hey, as a
1: Cowboys fan, that was one no, of no, my no, no. lightning round questions. Stop. I,
0: I, I have. Believe me, I have no allegiance to the Cowboys. I'm just saying. I'd imagine you are in an area that's quite deep in Cowboy fandom, and being uh, apparently a Packer fan, I can't imagine that did well for you.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that has has led to some tough conversations <laughs> because you know people find out you're a sports fan. There's an assumption that you're a Dallas fan, <laughs>
1: right?
0: But of
3: and course, nobody what else assumes would you that, mean?
1: that for me. Nobody assumes yeah.
3: that. Yeah, there's an assumption here, uh, but yeah, I, I I jumped on the 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 bandwagon of the Vince Lombardi Packers in the '60s, and I'm very loyal. I I <laughs> was a Packer fan in the '60s. And then for some dark years in the 70s and 80s, when I I would go entire seasons without ever even seeing our team on TV.
2: (laughs) You had that Lindy and Fonte voodoo (laughs) doll.
3: Exactly. um,
2: You mentioned the the whole thing about kids not coming back. And I I think of a place where we are in in Boise, Idaho, a, a very vibrant city. One that I think maybe in like an era right before you were doing this was doing some of the same things. Mm-hmm. We're kind of now, I think, have another reason that kids can't return to some of these places, and that's affordability from a housing perspective. Yeah, what's Oklahoma City look like from that now with some of the success? Is it still a balancing act? Is it still affordable? Where's that? Where's that at right now?
3: Well, it's it's starting to change. About the time I left office, this was 2018. You could kind of sense that that people were being forced out of their neighborhoods for the very, very first time. That had never been an issue. And my former chief of staff is now the mayor, and uh, he'll be the president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors here in a year or two. He's he's done incredible things on the national stage um, and kind of stood on the shoulders of my predecessors and some of the work that we did. But, um, but he's having to deal with you know, with uh, affordable housing uh, and some issues like that that I really didn't have to deal with. The the reality is there's a lot of affordable apartments and and suburban housing structure in our metro area. But because we didn't have a lot of housing downtown, almost all of the downtown housing is new construction. And new construction is expensive. And so mm-hmm. not everybody can afford to live downtown that wants to live downtown. So there's huge demand and with demand comes higher prices. So, you know, I, I used to joke that, you know, if, if you lived downtown in 1990, you were probably in jail. <laughs> <laughs> because because really no one in their right mind would have lived downtown Oklahoma City in in that era. I mean it and was now it, you're
2: gonna have the tallest dark. building in America.
3: <laughs> yeah, Is that, right? Yeah. right. I I don't know if that's gonna happen. That, that <laughs> seemed like an April Fool's joke to me. But but yeah, so now there's people wanting to live downtown and there's a whole that's a whole different dynamic. Um, so it
2: sounds like maybe between the whole metro area or maybe even the city itself as a cross-section, there's still some better options than maybe other oh, yeah. places are seeing, and it's very concentrated.
3: Yeah, if, I mean, if if you don't mind living out a little bit, you know, 10 miles, 20 miles, um, you can you can obviously get very affordable housing, probably as affordable as almost anywhere in the United States. But if you want to live downtown, you know, where we have the streetcar and some of these, you know, urban parks and the— the canoe, kayak, and rowing—if you want to live in that kind of cool environment—it's—it's it's getting expensive, and that's a shame. But like I say, it's a reality because we just didn't have any—you know—older housing to reconstruct. We had—we had to build everything new uh, because we didn't have any.
0: Nobody told that joke about living in downtown and being in jail to the United executives as they were trying to woo them into town, right? That was <laughs> hopefully right. not part of the the chat afterwards.
3: <laughs> yeah. We were just in denial that the urban core mattered. <laughs> yeah. You know, we thought it was all about incentives. Uh, we found out that yeah. the quality of life in your city matters.
2: Well, it's the thing I've, been seeing it for years, no longer. And we still have places that have this mindset. Oh, if we can get them some water sewer and a good road, that's all we need. And that's pivoted toward the quality of life stuff. And the places that have gotten that, I think have been the most successful.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the reality is you got to have those things too, you know, but oh, yeah, yeah. But you, but you can get in the conversation to your point. You know, if you, you know, you got to have all those business incentives, and you got to have the infrastructure, and you know, and people care about you know access to rail, and all of that stuff is very, very real. But you can't even get in the conversation if you don't have a quality of life anymore. You you've got to have a place where people want to live, so that job creator knows that they can attract highly educated people to come work in that in that city, and you know that's that's our success ultimately. Um, it'd be nice if the quality of life was the only thing that mattered and you know, they could, they could build their own rail hubs and, and uh, we didn't need to put incentives in place, but we got to do that too.
1: So I'm going to do a quick plug since you haven't done it yet, but your okay. new book or your book, the next American uh-huh. city, Right, um, I'm about halfway through it. And I just find there's so many, I guess, reminders of motivation of why we work in that space and and making a difference. Um, and really reflections to what you talked about of, What does the next city look like and what's important? How do you get there? So putting that plug in, what's now? You wrote this awesome book. It's a great reflection. What are you up to now? I mean, what's exciting you? What's coming next for you?
3: Well, I love to travel and talk about my experiences and what urban planners are doing today. And I love to talk and think about what's on the horizon Mm -hmm. and I can't help but think the autonomous vehicle is eventually going to emerge and become a part of our daily life. Mm. And I think it will probably become the biggest disruptor Mm. in our lifetime for the design of cities. Mm. I used to think it would happen more quickly than it, than it probably is going to, it probably will be kind of a a slow iteration. Um, But I just think there's so many opportunities to correct some of the problems that the 20th century left us with, um, with the arrival of of uh, uh, shared automobiles and uh, autonomous drivers, and you know the removal of service parking lots and a lot of things that have have caused issues uh, with the quality of life in cities. Uh, there's an opportunity there, and I think we ought to seize it.
0: Yeah. So, Mick, we're gonna, I'm gonna ask you one more question before we turn our attention to the lightning round. Um, our audience is, is I think it's quite vast in the sense of the demographic side of things. We have planners from around the country and even the world in, in some instances who who really I think love getting a message from the people like just like yourself. I'm curious though, especially two groups, okay? The planner who's been doing this for a while maybe kind of a little bit burned out, not sure what they can do about certain things and now <laughs> that they're end a little bit. And then the other one, the one that's either just out of college or nearing the end of their degree program and I can't wait to get after it, right? I'm gonna ask you to speak to the two of those groups and what would you say to them to keep to motivate them to do the types of things that you championed and your staff was able to achieve in Oklahoma City. And now here you see the fruits of all of that, you know, years later, what would you say to those two crowds?
3: Well, first of all, that the work that you do is very, very important, but it, it, nothing changes very quickly. Mm-hmm. I like to think in spans of 10 and 20 years. Can can you help a kid that is growing up today have a better life in their city, you know, that 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 you're helping to design from 20 Ooh, years?
2: An elected official that thinks about 10 and 20 year increments? <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah. pause for a second and reflect on that in and of itself.
3: Yeah, that, you know, and I, I used to say, you know, when I when I was the mayor, the city was just progressing. with this great trajectory. But a lot of that was because of the work my predecessors had done. And I was always trying to talk about the fact that when you're a mayor or member of a city council in a city that, especially in a weak mayoral type of of situation uh, with a city manager, form of government, if the things are going well in the city at that point, you should probably ask, well, who's the city manager today and who were the mayor and council 10 years ago? Because that's probably who was leading the direction that the city is now enjoying or regretting. I, I really believe a, a member of the city council or mayor, and I would I would add, you know, a lot of the staff members too. But kind of depends on on the the role. Um, you've you've got to think about how we can design a better city down the line. Um, it's so easy for an elected official to get caught up in today's issue and, you know, tomorrow's calamity. And, you know, did the trash get picked up and, you know, you have six calls about the street that was missed and you're concentrating on that, trying to figure out who to fire to fix that problem. (laughs) When you, you should be, you know, attending conferences or going to national events or traveling and looking at other cities who have done things that your city ought to consider. So you can start planning today how to get your city to, to reach some of those more lofty heights. Um,
2: and I think, going back to Chris's question for planning staff to do that and, and be
3: curious about those things too, right? Yeah. The the planners are usually the ones that already know it. <laughs> and I, I think it's, it's also counterintuitive that 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 in, in in there's a lot of inference that mayor and council shouldn't go on these junkets. They shouldn't travel. They they absolutely should get out of the city and go see other places. Because when you're in that position, you look at other cities completely differently than before you were elected. All of a sudden, you see things that you never saw. While I was mayor, I I got my MBA. At New York University, an executive program. I made forty-five trips, flying up to New York on weekends, and so that—that's—that's that's not the pivot to that story. But the point is, I spent forty-five weekends in New York City
2: mm.
3: while I was the mayor of Oklahoma City, and the opportunity to see a city of that of that of that size working on a daily basis, uh, I thought was really really valuable. And I I traveled probably more. Than any elected official ever has because I had opportunities to speak. And so people would invite me to speak. And I was, I was, you know, traveling maybe, I don't know. 30, 40, 50 cities a year for years as the mayor of Oklahoma City. And I was talking about Oklahoma City, so I was outselling the city. But what I was also doing was looking at that pedestrian bridge over there and seeing how much better <laughs> it is than our Department of Transportation builds pedestrian bridges. <laughs> and I was stealing ideas over here and over there, and we're building a park. And so I'd go to Millennium Park in Chicago and just look at, at you know at how it worked. Because I, you know, I, I don't know anything about building a park. But I can study it, you know if I if I go there and take time to look. And I could see things that I never would have seen had I just stayed in Oklahoma City and thought that my main job is to make sure that the trash gets picked up tomorrow. My yeah. main job was trying to build a city that would keep our grandkids from from leaving um, And I, I think I just from that standpoint, I just had a different perspective of my yeah. role. and yeah. and I had a great city manager. That was making sure the trash was already picked up. There you <laughs> go. There you go. <laughs> that, I just that, that may be the the buried lead in uh, from a journalistic sense of everything that I've talked about. I I had a city staff that was really really good.
0: I, I you're telling that story of a, a a man from Oklahoma City going to New York, taking ideas and bringing them back, and I hearken back to the old '80s '90s era pace picante at New York City, right? Yeah. <laughs> Get a rope.
3: Yeah. Well, I didn't I I assure you when I got back in Oklahoma City, I didn't brag about it. <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: right, right. I'm smart man. I, four, I, that's why I was, you got four terms right there. But right? I was that out of logic.
3: town. I didn't I didn't Hey, look at this exciting day I'm having! <laughs> yeah, in Petersburg yeah. or Spokane or wherever mm-hmm. I was, you know, yeah. I I didn't let people know I was traveling or I was out of town. I mean, if yeah. they could find out. I wasn't I wasn't embarrassed by it, but I wasn't out talking about it either, right? But, right? Because well, let's you know, let's sure enough, uh, nothing goes wrong and and people want to know where I am. Yeah,
0: let's transition to our lightning round in the short amount of time that we have with you. We appreciate all of your great insight. And again, you know, a quick search of of Mick on YouTube and you're going to be even more inspired. Lombardi-esque, I think, in many cases of the things that you have to say and the things that you've done. So we'll just pepper you with a handful of questions and then we'll wrap up this episode. All right. Are you ready? Here we go. Quick answer stuff. You are an Oklahoma City guy. What's the better museum? Apparently the Rattlesnake and Venom Museum, or the American Pigeon Museum and Library, both of which apparently are located in
3: OKC? I've not been to the Rattlesnake Museum, (laughs) but I have been to the Carrier Pigeon Museum. Oh. Um, You know, they're they're both one of those museums that when you walk in, the people that are inside wonder what you're doing there. You know, (laughs) it, it never dawned on them that you might be a customer. So <laughs> and you you missed the banjo museum. I mean, I don't Oh, know. it's on my oh, list. You just oh, jumped in. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay. Now John's piping if, up. Getting excited. If
3: you're in right if you're in the banjo's, <laughs> and I, I'm sure at least half of you are. If you're into banjos, the Banjo Museum is an amazing place. But if I go in there, it's like, you know, those banjos all kind of look alike to me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So out of your prolific Green Bay Packers card collection, what's your favorite (laughs) one? What's the best one you've got in there?
3: Oh, uh, a 1935 National Chickle of Clark Hinkle. Mm. Uh, Wow. Yeah, wow. it's a it's a pretty special card. Early Hall of Famer of a Packer running back, he retired as the NFL's all-time leading rusher, but he's been lost to history. You know, he's been he's been uh, out of football for 75 80 years, but that would that's my most priced card. Uh and I what you're alluding to, I have a my one my hobby, one of my passions is collecting sports cards. So baseball cards, football cards, other sports too. And um and I, I've taken it to almost an addiction-like level. Um, but I, I, I do enjoy that. And as a Packer fan, I I I have a Packer collection that's hard to beat.
1: That's mm-hmm. awesome. All right. So I'm asking this question as a Southern girl, so I'm not gonna lead you down, but I know okay. you like to add Coke, but yep. tea, sweet tea
0: <laughs> or <laughs> the other tea. Uh, the other tea. Way to sell the other version, <laughs> by the way. What other?
3: I'm not. I'm not a tea drinker. All right. But if I was, if I was pushed in that direction, it would be something uh, with a fruit-based tang to it. All right. And I could (laughs) probably. For our
1: audience, if you're in the South, they don't actually ask you. You just get sweet tea. You have to ask for the other. Yeah, right.
0: I don't think it's sweet tea. It's sugar with a side of tea. Yeah, uh, it's it's sugar with a side of tea. That's what sugar. That's what. <laughs> sweet Just go for tea a long
1: is. walk after. Long walk.
0: All right, Mick. On 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 many of your discussions, you ask your audience about grapes of wrath, and you ask them are they familiar. All right, have you read grapes of wrath?
3: <laughs> it was required reading at my high school, and I, I I ultimately came to think that we forced our kids to. To read it because we wanted them to feel bad about themselves. <laughs> so if, if if there ever was a book written that makes Oklahoma people look, you know, really inconsequential and pitiful. It's the grapes of Wrath. And you know that's that's my grandparents' generation. and you know, i I think about them often, and my parents grew up in that generation. It was a tragic time to become of age, the 1930s. Um, but uh, the 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 fact that that book is standard literary reading is something that's never really I, I, that I've never really been able to figure out. I don't I don't get. Um, yeah, I, I don't are, know. Uh, Steinbeck has better books.
2: Hmm. So as a former sports writer, I know everybody from your part of the country has a good Barry Switzer story. Do you have one you can tell?
3: Oh, do I ever? And, I, you know, I think there was like a, a kind of a 30-year wait for me to start telling this story. <laughs> and, and occasionally I get asked about it. But in 1989, Barry had retired, and he was asked to speak. Uh, I know he was asked to be on an episode of Coach. Remember the the Hayden mm-hmm. Fox show and he was on it and also on that on that uh while well, on that episode i went out there with him as a sportscaster to show hey what barry switzer's doing now he's going to be on coach which is my abc network and and so i was out there and um uh, and being with barry switzer for one four-hour night in los angeles should have been a movie <laughs> uh it it was uh the most incredible Semi-embarrassing night of my <laughs> life, um, and and anybody who who gets the details of that just it, it sees their blood curl and can't believe that I was actually there to witness some of the things that I saw that night uh it was wow it was, we need it, a part was, two of that yeah. I <laughs> saying,
2: uh, a, a guy that became pretty good friends he had been the athletic d- director for a while at k-state and and that was when switzer was at oklahoma yeah. and he definitely shared a, a bunch of those that definitely weren't fit for print <laughs>
3: yeah well barry is a good friend to this day in fact uh i saw his wife just a week ago she came over to oh, visit wow. awesome. um but uh being Barry Switzer was was a was a full time job, whether you were whether you were coaching football or just living life, just being. And, and I I got to see it uh, for one four hour period in Los Angeles, and it was a night I'll never forget.
1: It's awesome. All right, I have one more question on lightning round before we sum up here. Okay. So I was absolutely intrigued by how much you travel and getting ideas, and you're talking to three people who do that all the time. So. Mm-hmm our spouses probably always wonder why we have so many pictures of certain things on our phones. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have pictures of parabolic crowning on the road, you know, and he's like, why do we have a picture of a road on our, on our phone? So <laughs> of all the pictures on your phone from all your travels, um, thinking back, what do you think is is maybe the most prevalent subject that you have pictures of on your phone?
3: Streets. Um, I I can't tell you how many we were designing a brand new boulevard in downtown Oklahoma City. We replaced the old interstate corridor, moved it and built an an at grade boulevard in its place. Mm. And so I spent so much time K Street and I Street and. Lettered streets, I can't remember today. And I would step off, you know, the different sleeves and the different lanes and the parking. And I would say, you know, it's, you know, is, and I'd bring it back and I'd study it with our city manager and staff, you know, what kind of street do we want? Because, um, Jeff Speck became a good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And Jeff was the one who showed me that the most important thing about an urban core was its streets. And, that was such a landmark moment for me when he said that, and I was trying to think about what in the heck he was talking about. Um, and I realized how right he was. Um, and so I spent a lot of times trying to learn about street design and what makes a good street and how important it is to the quality of life and the fabric and interaction with buildings and parks and all of those things that you all know really well. But I didn't know anything about it. Um and so you, what would I take pictures of? Streets. I, I'd look at I'd see this is a great street. And I'd just stay on it and take pictures from every angle so we could come back and study it and see, you know, how that re- how that, what we could do in Oklahoma City that might take some of those best elements of those other places.
1: That is such great advice for all elected officials and, and public and private planners is, you know, take those pictures. Figure out what you want for your vision of how you can do it. So thank you so yeah. much for that insight. Yeah.
3: Sure, yeah. Sabrina.
0: And streets shouldn't necessarily be political, but yet, you know, oftentimes they can be. But, you know, here you and Jeff, I know, come from, you know, different places on that spectrum a bit. And here you came together on a topic that changed people's lives for the better. And it's it's possible. Oh, my gosh, it's possible we can actually have good conversations, right? So.
3: And uh, man, I had a lot of good conversations about parks. Yeah. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I can't I remember the day and you know, Mayor Daly was so excited to show me his parks, you know, around around Chicago. And, you know, it's it's great to have other mayors talk about what they're proud of in their city and you see it through their eyes. And then you go back and you try to see how you know what elements can we do in our city. And and one aspect of this is, you know, we had a we had an expanding tax base in Oklahoma City. Our economy was growing. And when you have expanding tax bases, you have discretionary dollars. And so if you're working in a city that is having decreasing tax base, it's really hard to find the dollars to make meaningful change going forward. And so a growing economy is paramount to being able to restructure and change the urban environment. So don't get, don't, don't. When you hear somebody talking about jobs and all of those things, growing economy is absolutely essential for creating a city where we want to live.
0: Wonderful. Well, Mick, thank you so much for taking time out of your day uh, to speak with us and our audience. We, We greatly
3: appreciate it and can't thank you enough. Well, you guys are a lot of fun. Thanks for thanks for <laughs> letting me re- remember a lot of really fun things.
0: Good, good. All right, to our audience, make sure a couple of things. Go find Mick's book, The Next American City. It's available all over the place. Uh, and pick it up. Read it. be inspired, right? Also remember, he is a business consultant and public speaker at Magellan Executive Partners. And uh, I'm sure continuing to do great job and all the speaking engagements that he's doing. Bring him to your town. Motivate your, your mm-hmm. folks like you did today with us. So uh, thank you again. So to our listeners one more time, hit up our website, www.theplanetcommissionpodcast.com. Like, and subscribe. Send us a message. We always like hearing from you. To my fellow commissioners, can I have a motion to adjourn? (laughs)
1: I'm going to say, I'm
0: going to say, I'll say, I'll make the motion,
2: but I just thought of this because I looked it up of the top 50 metro areas and population in the U S Oklahoma city is the only one I've not been to. So I need to change <laughs> that real quick. Absolutely. <laughs> there you go. All right. So there right. Is a
1: motion. Move for adjournment. It,
0: yeah. I don't think I asked for discussion on That's the motion. Sorry, yet, sorry. sorry. That was just That's Robert's like brain way. hit <laughs> <We don't, laughs> me
1: late. Yeah. We Robert don't, we don't want to speech. end. We don't yeah, want to end. I hear
0: you. All right. We have a motion in a second. Uh, we're all in favor. We'll see you next time. Thank you to our audience. Uh, we appreciate you. Hey, everybody. Commissioner Danley here. Would you like to see more, hear more? Well, we got you covered. Go to our website, www.theplanningcommissionpodcast.com. It's got everything you want. Guests, yep, past episodes, the video, the audio, even our whiskey pairing, links to everything about all the people we've had on. Books, websites, you name it. It's unbelievable. You want to reach out to us, please. We'd be more than happy to chat. You can email us, planning commission podcast at gmail.com. You want to tweet at us? Go for it at Planning Commission. We're also on YouTube with the Planning Commission Podcast channel facebook heck send us a carrier pigeon if you need to we'd love to hear from you about ideas guests you name it thank you for listening we appreciate it we'll keep doing our thing you keep doing yours have a good one